All right, so we are continuing in our Advent series through the book of Philippians, and there's four chapters in the book of Philippians. There's four Sundays um, for Advent, and so chapter one, two, three, four, one chapter each week, and we're on chapter three this week. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three. This book, the main command, the, the kind of primary command, if you were to boil it down, is found in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so this book of Philippians, God does not intend to just leave us as we are, where, you know, goes in one ear and out the other. He intends to change us, to make us the kind of Christians he wants us to be to make us the kind of Christians that the world needs to see. Okay, so let's be open and ready and receptive to what God wants to say to us this morning and also what he wants to do in us and through us, okay? So as we come to the themes of chapter 3, one of the questions we need to ask is, what are the marks of authentic and mature Christianity? What are the characteristics? So in certain circles, it could be that the person doesn't drink or smoke or dance or have a tattoo. That's the mark of mature Christianity. In other circles, it could be that you have to hold certain political views and vote in a certain way. Or in other circles, you have to have all the right theology and cross all your orthodox I's and dot all your doctrinal T's. And still other circles, you got to speak in tongues or have certain ecstatic experiences, and that's what marks you off as authentic and genuine, mature Christian. So our passage this morning is all about the marks of authentic and mature Christianity. So we are going to get examined this morning by the Spirit of God, by His Word. But this is a good thing. Okay, even if it hurts, even if the Lord exposes things that need to change, it's because he loves us. It's because he knows what's good for us. And so we need to ask ourselves, is my Christianity nominal, like in name only? Is it external or is it transformational? Like am I a completely different person? Obviously not perfect, but The lordship of Christ is over every aspect of my life, and I want him to change all of who I am and everything I say and do. Again, or is it more like a veneer? We don't want Christianity, like veneer Christianity, you know, just kind of pasted on the outside. We want faith in Christ that's integrated into all of who we are and what we do. So are we lovers and followers of Jesus all the way through in every aspect of life? Or you could ask it this way, is Jesus more like an app in your life, or is he like the operating system? So obviously, he should be more like the operating system. So a week ago, journalist Ben Sixsmith wrote a sad and actually kind of a remarkable article for The Spectator. So the title of the article is The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. Six Smith, who by his own admission is not religious, made some profoundly insightful statements in this article, um, though it also turns out to be profoundly sad. So he's writing of Carl Lentz, former pastor of Hillsong Church in New York City, 
and maybe you're familiar with Hillsong's music. Uh, Lentz was particularly well known for his friendship with, and if you don't know who these people are, it's cool. We love you, but you know, if, if you've looked at the news, you've probably seen these names before. He had a well-known friendship with Justin Bieber, and some other cel- celebrities known to attend the church include some of the Jenners and one of the Kardashians. I don't know which one. I can't keep up. Okay, a few of you got that. Selena Gomez, uh, Chris Pratt, who's an actor, Kevin Durant's a pro basketball player, other pro basketball players. Anyway, so Lentz was fired from Hillsong in November for cheating on his wife and other improprieties, and it sounds like there was also a pretty unhealthy leadership culture where, among other things, Lentz catered to the rich and famous. But it's the article that's worth our attention this morning. So Sixsmith writes this, and you just need to listen until the end. Um, The end of the article will have part of the quote up on the screen, but he writes this. There's an irony in in how whenever Christians seem to attach themselves to mainstream culture with all its vices, in the hope of drawing people towards God, they seem to get drawn toward vice. This is not a believer writing these things. Making yourself a very public representative of God rather than a humble messenger is a dangerous business when you are, like all of us, a very flawed human being. This case also asks questions about the church itself. I have no doubt that Hillsong, New York City, under Lentz's leadership, enriched thousands of lives. Even young Mr. Bieber has avoided legal controversies and settled down with his wife since joining Hillsong. Good luck to him. Still, it seems to represent what I call the with a twist of Christianity trend. There's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. We can see the with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Jerry Falwell Jr. was representative of the right-wing business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians, of whom Nadia Boltz-Weber is an extreme example, who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. The former believes secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So, if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Wow. Now, obviously, we don't need to just be weird for weirdness sake. But sometimes, (laughs) like, we need to hear this. 
So what are the marks of authentic and mature Christianity? We don't want just Christianity with a twist, right? Or we don't want just a twist of Christianity added on to just normal American life and values. So what are those marks? What are we aiming at? Well, the first mark on an authentic and mature Christian is joy in Jesus. Okay? Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. The reason I say joy in Jesus, it's going to say, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. But chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself, and God exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that at, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He is Lord of lords. Okay? So rejoicing in the Lord is rejoicing in the Lord Jesus, our Lord and Master. So finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I mean, Paul's practiced what he preached here, right? He's not living some cushy life, you know, some ivory tower thing and, or telling them to do one thing and doing something else. No. In fact, the church of Philippi partly exists because of his rejoicing in the Lord. How was this church birthed? So Lydia came to faith, but then Paul gets thrown in prison with Silas, and he's singing, rejoicing in the Lord at midnight, and the jailer comes to faith, right? So he was rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of prison in Philippi, and now as he pens this book, he's in prison again in Rome. And he's rejoicing. And he wants the Philippians to know, hey, don't worry about me. I got prison ministry going on here. So I'm rejoicing. You should rejoice too. And you know what? You guys are going to face suffering. I can do it. And it doesn't threaten my joy in the Lord. And you can endure it. And it doesn't have to threaten your joy in the Lord. Okay? So we'll see again how important this is. Next chapter, next week, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. So, Brothers and sisters, church, is your joy in Jesus? Do you rejoice in the Lord? So this is absolutely and utterly essential, you can see it, to conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. If we want our lives to display and radiate the worth of the gospel, and we're all just like, you know, look like we got baptized in lemon juice, you know, like, no. So how much of your joy in the last month was in the Lord? What if Christians in Delaware, I mean, this is like, I remember this hit striking us when we moved here. Not a lot of happy people in Delaware, okay? Like, seriously, different. I mean, from where we were from. What if Christians in Delaware were like just counterculturally, like, like unflappably, steadily, not, not weird and fake and, you know, I mean, it can also be compatible with sorrow and struggle, right? Minor key stuff. But like deep, abiding, spirit-wrought joy that characterized Christians in Delaware. Anybody want to like go for that, like push forward for that, ask the Lord for that, be a part of that? Yeah, let's do that. So not because our lives are easy or we're healthy and wealthy, but because of who our Savior is, 
who's also our Lord. We have a father. We have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We have a rock and a strong tower and a comforter and a helper and a counselor and a shepherd who will never leave or forsake us. So this is the kind of joy, you know, Chris referenced that Minor Prophet series in Habakkuk chapter 3. This is the kind of joy in the Lord that can say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. No, no circumstances can take the Lord from you. Can't take the God of your salvation from you. Can't take his past deliverance from you. Can't take his future deliverance from you. So, joy in Jesus, Philippians 3.1, is a mark of an authentic and mature believer. So let's pursue our joy in Jesus, church. Only there will our joy be safe. And only there will our joy be full. Right? I mean, Jesus said that's why he came. That's why he taught. That's why he died. And it's that his joy would be in us and our joy would be full. So now, as Paul goes on, he's going to warn the Philippians against false teaching and false teachers. Okay? So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. I don't mind repeating myself. <laughs> and it's safe for you. So look out, brothers and sisters, for the dogs. What? Okay, you probably love your dog. But this is not the friendly family pet, you know, man's best friend. This refers to those nasty, wild street dogs, the pariah dogs, okay? And Jews called Gentiles in the first century dogs. That's how they viewed them. And now Paul, the Jew, who is now following Jesus, turns that on its head because there were some people, some Jews, called the Judaizers. This was the problem in Galatia, right? It was like you need Jesus plus circumcision. You know, you got to keep the law in order to be like a, a really good Christian. And Paul's like, uh, no, don't add anything to Jesus to be justified. That's false teaching. That's legalism. So look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. That's what they really are. They're not just kind of, you know, teachers with a different message. You know, no, these are evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. Marked, what is circumcision? That's a weird, you know, like, ugh. I don't even want to think about that, okay? But the point is, Old Testament, Old Covenant, the sign of the covenant, covenant, this marked off who was a part of the people of God, the covenantal people. So that was the mark, the seal, the sign of the covenant. So Paul is saying, spiritually speaking, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this 
whole circus, circumcision thing, I, I think I saw this more clearly this time through than ever before. The Philippians have been one of my favorite books for, you know, a long, long time. The circumcision, <laughs> the circumcision thing here is actually a really big deal because it, it shows you that what, what Paul is saying is that's not what marks off the followers of Jesus, the, the genuine, authentic Christians. This is what marks off the covenant community. Okay? Here are the marks. So he's saying, we are the circumcision and we worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. You see there's kind of some double meaning there. No confidence in the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. Okay? So here's, here's the bottom line here. Joy is tied to healthy gospel doctrine. Legalism kills joy. So Paul says, look out. Beware. Watch out for legalism because it'll kill your joy. And I want your joy to be in Jesus. I want you to be able to rejoice in the Lord always. Authentic and mature Christians know how to hold firmly to healthy gospel doctrine so that their joy is in the Lord and it's full. So no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so Paul, as a Jew prior to the Damascus Road, he had this great resume, right? He had this great pedigree. And it was really easy to put your confidence in the flesh. And he's saying he refuses to put his confidence in the flesh before God. His pedigree, his religious performance, his spiritual resume, as it were, all that is just loss and rubbish. He is not going to be like that Pharisee in Luke 18, right? Where he stands, I thank my God that I'm not like this guy. I fast twice a week. I do this, I do this, I do this. And the other... Man, the tax collector, he's beating his breast, you know. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Who went away justified? Righteous. It was the one who knew he needed mercy. So no confidence in the flesh. So for us, that means, where, where's your confidence? Like, do you feel like God likes you more on your good days than on your bad days? Why is that? Because your righteousness before him, your acceptability before him is tied to your performance? Like, a ah, little yellow flag there, right? No, we're saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Our righteousness is a gift from God. We are declared righteous because all of our sin Jesus took on the cross and his Righteousness is given to us. So we can boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. We've got to guard against an older brother heart, right? Parable, parable of the prodigal son. Isn't it easy to have that older brother heart? I've served you all these years and this is how you treat me? Like suffering comes into our lives and we start looking around and going, um, like I've been paying taxes here spiritually for a long time, Lord. Like, come on, throw me a bone. We need to guard against that. So we worship by the Spirit, not by rote externalism. 
we glory, we boast in Christ Jesus. I mean, what else do we have to boast in? We've been saved by grace, so no one can boast. We are all doing, if you're in Christ, you're doing way better than you deserve, actually infinitely better than you deserve. We are not going to hell anymore. Anybody? Like, we're in God's family. We know who we are. We know why we're here. We know what went wrong. We know how it's made right. We know where we're going. And we have our loving and sovereign shepherd who's going to lead and guide us all the way home. So all of our confidence is in him, right? There's no reason for any confidence in ourselves, in our flesh, in our performance, in any of that. I mean, if anybody had reason to put confidence in the flesh, it was the Apostle Paul. But watch how he evaluated all of this. This is point number two, cost-benefit. Look at verse four. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, like those Judaizers, these people you need to watch out for, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's the right day, you know, according to the law. Of the peep, this is like, this is like the who's who. I mean, if everything's going for Paul, he's of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, how does he evaluate all that? What is that worth to be right with God? It's worth nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But whatever gain I had, because that looks like a lot of gain in the first century, you know, in his circles, I counted it as loss. It's not neutral. It's actually loss. Because if I'm tempted to put my faith and trust and confidence in any of that stuff, it's going to keep me from putting my confidence in Jesus. So I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, so he did it in the past. He continues. We continue to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. All the stuff I could hang my hat on, my impressive resume, my pedigree, I'm going to count it all as rubbish because all I want is I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which again would be confidence in the flesh, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God as a gift that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Because to live is Christ, right? Others-centered, fruitful labor. May share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible or however means, whatever means God Ordains, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this is authentic, mature Christianity. How could we summarize it? Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. That is mature, authentic Christianity. Christ is all. Flesh is loss, rubbish. Everything that I might treasure or count as gain to be impressive, to be accepted, with God and others, it's just worthless. If your flesh is your confidence, your righteousness is your gain, you know, you've got to keep up appearances, you've got to keep up with the law, you've got to keep up with your performance. You don't need Jesus in his righteousness if that's the case. If you can be right with God with all that stuff, 
But that's all a trap. It's an illusion. We can't be righteous in our own strength, by our own doing. We have nothing to boast in except the cross of Christ. Listen to a couple texts that just intersect well, um, parallel the themes here. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him, because of his grace, you are in Christ, who became to us everything. Wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord or Galatians 6 14 and 15 far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision what really counts is a new creation and that's only by grace, through faith in Jesus. So Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no reason for confidence in the flesh, but there's every reason for all of our confidence in Christ. Okay, so Paul suffered the loss of all things. But listen, does it sound like a pity party to you in Philippians 3? <laughs> like, don't feel sorry for him. He's not having a pity party. In fact, I listened, or actually, I read this article that, uh, you know, struck the same note. I was really encouraged by this. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Beckett Cook. Okay, I'll let him tell you the story of who he was and who he now is. Okay. So, with a highly successful career as a production designer in the fashion world, I lived as a fully engaged gay man in Hollywood. This is Beckett Cook speaking in an article recently. I had many boyfriends over the years, attended pride parades in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, and marched in innumerable rallies for gay marriage equality. My identity as a gay man was immutable, or so I thought. But in 2009, I experienced something extraordinary. I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ while attending an evangelical church in Hollywood for the first time. I was invited by a stranger I met at a coffee shop the week before. So he tells the story in his kind of biography, like memoir thing, where he and his partner were having breakfast on this, or brunch or something, on a Sunday, and like, this is in L.A., and these people came in, like, one of them had a Bible and, like, this Romans thing, and they're just kind of like, what? This is so out of place. And these people were praying, and, and they were just intrigued. And so he just struck up a conversation with this guy, and he was so, like, loving and gracious and humble and authentic and, you know, didn't backpedal at all, but also wasn't, like, you know, caustic and, and whatever. And the guy just invited him to church, and that's how he went to church the next week. So I walked into a church, into the church, a gay atheist, and walked out two hours later, a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. I was stunned by this reversal. Since then, I no longer identify as gay, but rather choose to be celibate 
count everything as lost. Like he's, because I believe God's plan and purpose revealed in the Bible is authoritative, true, and good. Surrendering my sexuality hasn't been easy. I still struggle with vestiges of same-sex attraction, but denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus is an honor. Any struggles I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and gives my life meaning. My identity is no longer in my sexuality. It's in Jesus. When I came out as a Christian to my friends in L.A. and New York, I was met with skepticism and in some cases outright hostility. But it wasn't until my memoir, it's called A A Change of Affection, was published in 2019 that all hell broke loose. My closest lifelong friends completely abandoned me. And my production design agency in Hollywood dropped me like a hot potato under the most vague and frivolous of pretexts, even though I was one of their top artists, earning them loads of money over the years. Of course, if my memoir had been a celebration of my gay identity, I would have had advertising and editorial clients beating down my door with even more job offers. I lost both dear friends and my livelihood. And then he says this, to be clear, I'm not complaining or claiming to be a victim. What I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. Like the Apostle Paul, I'm learning to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career were harsh, but being in the kingdom of God more than compensates I am royalty, an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ. My joy is not fragile and dependent on the affirmation of others. My joy is secure because I am in Christ and thus favorable in the sight of God whose approval is ultimately all that matters. (laughs) Isn't that encouraging? So you see the cost-benefit that Beckett Cook made. It's the same as Paul made. No matter the suffering, if we embrace this path of suffering, laying our lives down for the interests of Christ and the interests of others, you know, and obviously coming to Christ could be a train wreck and we lose all kinds of things. But when we see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as Lord, then it's all worth it. So, Think about the passage that Mike read. If you could talk to that dude before he found the treasure in the field, and you said, okay, would you like this, you know, three-acre plot? And he says, how much is it? And you give the, the figure, and it's like his whole estate. He'd have to, like, liquidate everything to buy this thing. He's like, oh, no thanks. I mean, I got my grandfather's, you know, clock and, you know, all these things I'm sentimental about, and you know, it was just such a hassle to go to the pawn shop and, you know, sell everything on eBay and, you know, all that. But then he's got his walking stick and he hits something. The treasure's worth a thousand times more than his estate. Now what happens? He's like, oh. you know, he's like giggling all the way to the pawn shop. You know, he he can't type in fast enough to eBay. It's no sacrifice. So we've got to see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and then every bit of suffering, loss, 
is just no problem. It's not even comparable to the gain that we have in Christ. So this is, this is the mark of authentic, mature Christianity. Paul's life is an example of it. The marks of Jesus mark us his surpassing worth, and then we are willing to share in his sufferings, dying that others might live, laying down our interests in the interests of others. So if we are going to go deep with Jesus and know him, we do get him, but we also have to embrace suffering for his sake, right? Paul says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, I want to share his sufferings. So, question for us here. If you could have your choice between less suffering and less Jesus or more suffering and more Jesus, which would you choose? I think it's a sobering question. But think about it this way. If you asked an Olympian hopeful a similar question, if you could have your choice between less suffering and less of a chance of a gold medal and more suffering and more chance of a gold medal, which one would you choose? I mean, it just kind of, deter it, it kind of depends on how much it's worth to us, right? And, you know, with the Olympian, you're dealing with chances of a gold medal, like, we can have Jesus, okay? There's no, like, iffiness about that. So the point is, is the gain worth the pain? If we really see the surpassing value of knowing Christ, then the pain's going to be worth it. So do you see how chapter 3 ties in with chapter 1? Because Paul is saying, I want you only this. Like, this is what it boils down to. I want you to live your lives in a manner that just radiates the worth of the gospel. So this is central. How much is Jesus worth to us, brothers and sisters? Is he everything to us? Or is he just like a garnish? Is he just like a veneer kind of add-on? Is he... Are we trying to live Christian, you know, this life with a Christian twist? So there's this, you know, we're talking about cost-benefit here. Interesting go thing going on in the book. I don't know if you heard it, but the word, the verb to count is used several times in Philippians. So look at chapter 2, verse 6. Christ Jesus, who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and, you know, became a servant even to the point of death and a cross. And then our passage, chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then, back in chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So, again, we're talking about cost-benefit, like reckoning what's most valuable to us. So if you were to put these together in kind of a logical progression, it would be Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be just held on to and used for his own advantage and comfort, 
but he willingly came down because we, we were worth it to him. Like, isn't that amazing grace and mercy that he's willing to give up these rights and prerogatives to suffer for us because he reckoned, he counted the gain of winning his bride more valuable than, you know, divine comfort or whatever you want to call it. I know it's kind of a weird way to describe it. So he was willing to embrace this infinite condescension and humility, humiliation, all for us. So when the beauty of that, him not counting that something to be used to his own advantage, when the beauty of that love captures our hearts, we see our desperate need for a Savior, we count everything as loss in view of the gain of knowing Christ. And when Christ is gain and everything else is put in its proper perspective, to live is Christ. So we can count others more significant than ourselves and serve them in a Christ-like way. So God's counting, Jesus' counting, leads to us counting the value of Christ, leads to us counting others more significant than ourselves, like Christ. So cost-benefit. It's central to our lives as humans. We do it every day, but... We need to do it in relation to Christ. Will we continue to count all things as lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ? So, like, think, think about it this way. You remember the rich young ruler? You know, he came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, okay, keep the commands. Yeah, I've kept those from my youth. Okay. Um, this one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and, you know, give money away. You'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure in heaven, like the kind that moth and rust can't destroy, thieves can't break in and seal. Um, and he just goes, that's, that's not a good deal. I'm out. Wait, wait. Like, do you see the contrast between the treasure hidden in the field and the rich young ruler? Like, oh Lord, please don't let me have blinders on in relation to your glory. So this is cost-benefit analysis. This is the result of a authentic, mature Christian cost-benefit analysis. So when Jesus is your greatest treasure, you know what you want? More of him. So point number three, more Jesus. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Isn't that great Bible logic? I don't press on in order to make it my own, like, because Jesus is still holding it out there, and if I can perform well enough and I can, you know, be spiritual enough, then he'll give it to me. I press on to make it my own because Jesus has already made me his own. I'm already his. So therefore, I just want more of him. I want more of his grace. I want to know him better. So, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I'm not perfect yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Matthew Henry put it this way, wherever there is true grace, right, a mark of authentic, mature Christianity, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. Or wherever someone knows Christ, there is a desire to know Christ more. So we haven't arrived, but we should press on. This is called maximalism, not minimalism, when it comes to following Jesus, right? Jesus isn't just like an upgrade to an otherwise great life. He's everything. So there's more Christ to be had. He is the surpassingly valuable treasure. So Paul presses on, and he exhorts us to do the same and not settle, to live as Christ. Remember chapter 1? If I'm to remain on in the flesh, fruitful labor for me. So, listen, we're all going to be maximalist about something. Like, just think back on your last month. What, what are you maximalist about? Like, are you ever minimalist about Netflix <laughs> or social media? Like, this is, we just have to guard our hearts. I'm not trying to beat you with a stick. I'm saying, like, I see in my own life the things I'm inclined to, I'm like, that was a waste. Why did I just spend so much time? And I'm just doing this little, like, nibble thing on the word. Let's be maximalist as far as knowing Christ and seeking first his kingdom because he's the greatest treasure. So remember that article by Ben Sixsmith. Are we just like everybody else with a twist of Christianity? Is Jesus just like this little garnish? If so, Jesus isn't going to look like much. We're not going to actually have much joy, and Jesus isn't going to look like much as we live our lives in Wilmington and, and the surrounding area. But no, we want to radiate the worth of the gospel and show the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So let's be maximalist in pursuing Jesus and following him. So I, I think I can confidently say that God wants there to be no nominal Christianity among us in 2021, <laughs> or any year for that matter. No minimalistic, in name only Christianity, but authentic, mature Christianity goes hard after Jesus. So we don't have to become mature all at once, you know? Let's just fix our eyes in the right place and follow in the right direction. So, Take some time this afternoon. Think through, how can I do this? How can I, I want to know Christ. How can I fix my eyes on him and just build some patterns into my life that really help me follow him? So what are you going to read next year? How about you could start with Gentle and Lowly? I think, oh, I didn't even bring it. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's all about the heart of Christ. Get to know Christ. Read the Gospels. How about you start 2021 off on the right foot and say, I'm going to read through the Gospels, all four, four of them, and then maybe I'm going to read them again. Or I'm going to go really slow and just kind of like, oh, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. I want to know him. I want to know you. Not just know about you. I want to walk with you and know you. This is where we need to head. Press on. Maximalist, authentic, mature Christianity with our eyes fixed on Jesus one of the, the ways that we move in this direction, in addition to fixing our eyes on Jesus, is to also fix our eyes on those whose eyes are on Jesus. Fix our eyes on those whose eyes are on Jesus. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. As pastor in my pastor at the church in Illinois that we came from once said, these are the people who are in your field of vision when you look at Jesus. So find some people who have the distinctive marks of authentic, mature Christianity, the marks of the master on them, and follow their example. So who's that been for you? I mean, maybe you have people like that now in your life. Maybe you used to, but they died, or they moved, or you moved. So ask the Lord, who should this be for me right now? Maybe you need to just say, hey, can we get together for coffee, or can we go for a walk, and I want to get to know you better. I want, I want to learn how to faithfully, authentically, maturely walk with Jesus, and I want to learn from you. And also, think of not just alive people, but dead mentors. Okay? Don't neglect the dead mentors. There's so many worthy examples. So maybe, again, I mean, you could start maybe Christmas reading. What are you going to read over Christmas? How about a good biography? So here's one example. I was recently, um, my attention was drawn, drawn to a lady named Lilius Trotter. So she was a British artist who became a missionary to Muslims in Algeria. And she's got a book called Parables of the Cross that uh, Betsy Kirk told me about. And I thought, okay, that sounds like a lady I need to get to know because she was following hard after Jesus. It's a little quote from her. Never mind if the trouble shows no sign of giving way. It is just when it seems most hopelessly unyielding, the trouble, holding on through the spring days, alive and strong, it is then that the tiny buds appear that soon will clothe it with glory. Take the very hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot. Just there, he can bring your soul into blossom. I want to learn from her. Or, just, you could come up and see these later. It's probably the most thrilling, inspiring autobiography I've ever read. John Patton, Missionary to the New Hebrides. Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand. You can get it for free. VOM would love to give you a copy. The St. Andrews Seven. I won't even take the time. Labrie, this is awesome. Edith Schaefer, Francis and Edith Schaefer. The Lord planted them on a hill in the Swiss Alps and had a massive impact on tons and tons of people. Uh, another autobiography, kind of memoir, Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And I think this is maybe the one I'm going to read next. John Newton, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace by Jonathan Aitken. And that guy used to be a part of British Parliament, and he got saved when he went to prison. So, anyway. So let me close with this here. I, I recently listened to an interview with David Wells. Okay, some of you may recognize that name, some of you maybe not. But uh, this lady, Sarah Eckhoff-Zilstra, so the Gospel Coalition podcast. And here's what she said. Probably one of the most influential theologians you've never heard of. I mean, I've quoted him a couple times over the years, so perhaps you've heard his name. So he wrote the book No Place for Truth in the early 90s. It was a critique of much of evangelicalism 
and the move away from robust theology to kind of the seeker-sensitive model. He taught for years at Gordon-Conwell. He helped people like James Montgomery Boyce, Al Mohler, R.C. Sproul, and J.I. Packer to form the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. He set the stage for movements like Together for the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition. He grew up in Zimbabwe in the bush, like back when it was called Rhodesia. Um, he had some close encounters with leopards and later with a lion. It's a fascinating story of how he came to faith in Christ. Spent time with John Stott, Francis Schaeffer, Labrie, Francis and Edith Schaefer, um, where he met his wife, by the way. Um, that's another crazy story. They decided after two weekends of hanging out together that they should get married. Um, so after retiring from teaching at Gordon-Conwell, he got involved in a ministry called Rafiki that cares for and educates orphan children in 10 African countries. And um, the lady that started that ministry asked him to add a Bible study for them, and they did the whole Bible. It took 10 to 12 years to do this. It's currently being used by 400 study groups in Africa and beyond. And then Zilstra says this at the end of the interview. When you look back on your life as a whole, when you think about what's going to live on, what's your legacy going to be, what things, what are the things that you think of when you look back on your life that, you know, would be a part of your legacy or that you hope would be a part of your legacy? And here's how he responded. Oh, Sarah, he's probably in his 70s now. Oh, Sarah, I don't think about that at all. You just have to follow the Lord and in the best possible way that you're able, serve him, depending on him and on his grace, and let him dispose of your efforts however he will. I'm not looking back and asking about legacy or any of those things. I'm actually looking forward to the time when I'm with the Lord and all the chaos and suffering and evil of this world has been finally judged. Sounds like one of these. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ, Christ Jesus. So we're going to close with two songs. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and then give me Jesus. So let's sing these as prayers from authentic hearts that want to know Christ and have more of Christ and become mature in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have been so incredibly merciful and gracious and kind. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but you gave it up in order to rescue us. So Lord, please help us to do some righteous cost-benefit analysis this morning and in the days to come that you would be everything and that we would want more of you and that we would willingly give ourselves that others would have more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.